Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast we have at ESPN in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions. It's Moxie Bets. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Katie Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Bets. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Right Time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, we are going to wrap up The Right Time book club. David Remnick, the author of King of the World, will join us. But first... All right, so uh, this weekend, I decided to take a trip to Las Vegas for uh, NBA Summer League. I went with my man, Mike Smith. We did that a couple years ago before the world shut down. We thought it was cool, so we came back and we did it again. Now, big part of why I wanted to go to Summer League was I wanted to see my man, Chad Holmgren. As I have explained to you before, skinny boys need heroes, and I hope that he can turn out to be the hero. And as you know, I enjoy seeing these young Caucasians who get themselves radicalized and Chet showed up at the draft with a chain with some dice on. Okay, I want to go see this. Now, everybody has a legitimate concern about Chet. It's basically the same concern whether or not he is too skinny to play NBA basketball. And it gave people a lot of pause when in one of the earlier summer league games before they got to Vegas, he was getting moved around by Kenneth Lofton Jr., who is not Kenny Lofton, the baseball player's son, which I absolutely had to look up because honestly, I ain't going to lie. I couldn't figure out how the genetics were going to work such that that boy could be Kenny Lofton's son. So I was relieved to find out that that was not actually the case, right? Didn't think, and then the punnett squares wasn't going to be adding up for me. But anyway, yeah, man, the dude's really, really skinny. And now I'm a little bit worried. Here's why. Here's why, okay? One, I say this all the time when you got one of these skinny guys and you're like, oh, we'll put some weight on them. And I'm like, hey, take it from Bomani Jones. Just putting some weight on isn't really as easy as people make it sound like it is, right? It ain't no different than some of them big dudes. You'd be like, oh, he'll just lose some weight. Nah, and when they don't lose weight, it don't mean they ain't trying. It just ain't necessarily that easy for them. Okay, what got me about seeing Chet in person And I talked to somebody, I think it was on Thursday. It was either Thursday or Friday I was at the arena. And I talked to somebody and they were like, hey, when you see him, he's going to be bigger than you think he is, right? Like you're going to see how long his arms are. You're going to see how big his hands are. You're going to see how like solidly built he is. You're going to realize that he's maybe bigger than advertised. And I was in the tunnel uh, before they came out and I watched the Thunder team come out there And actually, no, that was not the way it went for me. He was not bigger than I thought he was. It was about what I thought he was, except this is the part that I find worrisome. Now, look, I ain't no personal trainer. I ain't no physiologist. I ain't no scientist. I ain't no doctor. I ain't none of those things, right? I ain't no strength coach, any of it. But a difference I absolutely noticed between him and Kevin Durant, for example, was this. Kevin Durant was much broader across the shoulders. 
right? Like when I think about some of these super skinny guys that we've been like, hey, let's see how this goes. And then they ultimately put the weight on. In fact, I'll use this as an example, though he's not a big man, Steph Curry. If you look at how skinny Steph Curry was at Davidson and now how like hot diesel he is now, my God. But if you look at that, he had the body, the frame to put on the weight in that way. I'm not sure that Chet has that frame. I also watched Chet get yammed on, like right in front of me. I was right under that basket, and I was like, ooh, 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 that's, that's, that's a little worrisome. You don't want that. Now, I ain't out on the dude, right? Again, skinny boys need heroes. I'm not saying that it can't work out for him. I'm not saying that it ain't going to work out for him. But I will say that I went and saw that in person and was like, oh, well, let's see about that. Um, I hate that I wasn't there for the James Wiseman Kaminga game on Sunday. I had left that morning because I got there in the middle of the game. The Warriors were playing on Friday. And so somebody told me, they were like, yeah, Kaminga out there on protest. Kaminga scored four points. It's like, he's out here like, how dare you have me play in summer league? Then they had Kaminga out there at the same time as Wiseman and Kaminga put up 28. Almost like he realizes as much as we talk about the depth that the Warriors are going to have next year. And when you look at it on paper, it is a little scary. Ain't but eight dudes going to be able to play in the playoffs. And that means you're going to have a ball handler slash creator that's going to be Jordan Poole. You're probably going to have a big man and you're going to have a wing as the three guys who come off the bench. Kaminga maybe can wind up being that wing. And if he is, that'll be scary. But uh, Wiseman and Kaminga, it appears to me, are going to be fighting for those minutes. And even if it ain't that uh, Kaminga is fighting for minutes with Wiseman, he's going to be fighting for minutes with Moses Moody. Like, not all of those dudes are going to be able to play. And it is wild to me. Again, I told you that whole way with the Warriors. I don't think you can play for now and play for then at the same time. And they've pulled it off. And not only have they pulled it off, they pulled it off with what I would consider to be exceptional talent. Kaminga was one of those dudes. He was like a number, like number one in his class recruit type player before he went to uh, the G League Ignite thing. Wiseman was in that same place. Moses Moody was not a number one in his class guy, but a dude who scored 17 points a game as a freshman at uh, Arkansas. Kevon Looney, again, a guy they took late in the first round, five-star recruit coming out. Like, it is mind-blowing the level of talent they've managed to assemble. They just went and got the homie White Dante. I can't wait till he gets there and is like, yeah, the arena's in San Francisco, but I live in Oakland, you know? First interview, he's going to be like, so, so did you ever think about playing for the Warriors? Man, you know, I made up my mind when I was 17. You know, he's going to hit us with some of that. Like, that that, that thing right there uh, can be fun. But I ain't want to talk about Summer League so much to talk about the basketball. I want to lay the scene out for you boys and girls. Sorry about that. Slang. <sighs> Being in Vegas, like as a grown-up, that's a great place to have summer league. You know what I'm saying? Get to drop in, play some blackjack, have some nice dinners, go to a show perhaps. It is fantastic. Like It is like NBA homecoming, honestly. Ain't no telling who you're going to see walking around. For those of you who are older, I saw Major Jones just walking around. Saw Vlade hanging out at a table. Who else did I see that I was like, oh, wow, look at that guy. It'll come to me later, man. You just saw a little bit of everybody walking around. You saw stars. You saw not stars. All of it, right? Like, you just, it's its a crazy weekend just to see whoever might be there 
from the NBA. I saw LeBron sitting there courtside, like, because it's the ultimate PR move for these guys. I'm going to watch the Summer League team. Ain't but maybe one dude on that team gonna make the NBA, right? Because Summer League games are not easy to watch, man. Um, but LeBron there, I was I was right behind him. Well, not right behind him directly, but I was behind the basket where he was sitting when uh, that dude uh, fell into, you know, fell into the crowd and, you know, LeBron got to make sure you see him. So he sticks his arm out and pulls him up because he a real team player for this dude. He ain't never going to talk to again. Um, all of that stuff. Right. It is a great scene. But I want you to stop and imagine something. Imagine your first trip to the strip club. If you have ever been to a strip club and a person who would enjoy being at a strip club. Now, imagine you're a person who would enjoy being at a strip club and could potentially be overwhelmed by everything that happens at that strip club. Okay. Now imagine you go to that strip club and somebody put a couple thousand dollars in your pocket as soon as you go to that strip club for the first time. You think you're going to walk out that strip club with all your money if you're like 20? Like, you think you're going to do that? Because that is what it has to be like to be in Las Vegas for Summer League and it is your first time being in Las Vegas. So like you walk around your hotel, wherever you are, the casino floor, and what you see is a bunch of like 6'5 to 6'9 dudes over and over and over again. But the thing is, you don't see them in their team-issued uniforms. You just see them as they are. It is very difficult to tell who is in the NBA, who simply wants to be the in the NBA, or who is fronting. But it's just a bunch of young dudes walking around with uh, the man bags, which I'm not hating on them for. In fact, I'm looking at them like your boy was on that in 2019. Glad y'all could catch up. You know what I'm saying? But you just see all these dudes around. And then you remember how young they are. And I remember how young one of them dudes was because I was sitting at a blackjack table playing minimum $25, right? Now, I'm not going to talk about the dude who was not a basketball player who had an ace and three showing and said, how much is that? That dude wasn't long for the tape. But the dude next to him had a little money. I think he put $100 down, ran through it, right? Rookie mistake. I've been there. Ran through it and then was like, I'll be back. I'm going to go to the ATM. I guess he went to the ATM and saw that $8.99 charge and was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. So I'm just going to put down the money I have in my pocket. That dude put down $25 and got one $25 chip to play at the $25 table. That's young. You know what I'm saying? But my only hope was it wasn't the last $25 he had to his name. And when I say that, this is what I'm talking about. When them boys get down there for Summer League, they get their per diem all up front. And they got to tell them, hey, man, this is all your money. This is what you have to eat off of. You have to be careful and then let them loose in Las Vegas. Now you see what the strip club analogy was that I was hitting you with. You think you'd be able to hold on to all your money? Like this is high altitude training for what it's about to be in the NBA. You're going to get a couple weeks in Las Vegas. You're going to learn to be skeptical really, really, really quick. Otherwise, you're going to learn to be broke really, really, really quick. But I just felt so old, man. I'm watching all these young dudes walk around. And, 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 and. Before I forget, before I forget. Hey, man, did y'all know dangly earrings is back in style for dudes? Did y'all know that? Yeah. Bruh, I saw, I, and just to be clear, 
even among people whom I respect. I was having dinner on Saturday night with some friends and I was sitting next to this dude who I didn't know. And he's a cool cat. He's a dark skinned dude. He had a flat top. Like he wasn't doing like nothing ridiculous like the Nerlens Noel, Iman Shumpert. But it was a flat top, right? He had the part in the flat top and he had a dangly like cross earring. He looked like Wesley Snipes in New Jack City. I saw a dude whom I actually respect wearing a dangly onk earring. And, and he ain't even a Kyrie type, I don't think. He ain't even that. I saw another dude with the cross earrings. I wanted to walk up to him and be like, you got to have faith, the faith, the faith. I did not know this was coming back around. No, no, no. We ain't going back there. Next thing you know, my man Howard Bryan going to turn up. He's going to be back out here with that pirate ring he used to wear back in the day. Well, it's about to be some Sinbad situation out here in these streets. Just letting y'all know before y'all get out here, if y'all ain't seen it. Yeah, man. They going back to the danglies. And now we going to sound like our fathers did when we had earrings. Like, hey, young man, are you sure that's how you want to comport yourself? And the answer, obviously, of course, is yes. And then what I'm going to say. I'm carrying a bag over my shoulder. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class, or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, meanwhile, while Summer League was going on, the WNBA All-Star Game was going on in Chicago. Okay, I was flying Sunday. I ain't have a chance to, like, get in on the WNBA festivities. I did want to check it out. I just didn't have the opportunity to do so. So, anyway, there's something fascinating about the way that the WNBA players always get it right, but the WNBA itself seems to operate the opposite. Right, so we talked about this when, uh, you know, George Floyd was going down and all of that stuff, and anytime something social of significance comes around, those women always get it right. They nailed it, right? And even with this, with everybody wearing 42 in the second half for Brittany Griner, they stood up and they nailed that. Boom, right? 
The WNBA, though. Like, did you see this thing where they had a, a concert that Chance the Rapper was doing that wasn't really open to fans? And people were like, yo, why isn't this open to fans? And the WNBA said basically they was afraid somebody was going to come shoot it up. Like, apparently after Buffalo and Uvalde, they were just like, eh, I don't know if we can do this. So they decided not to open it up to people. And my thought is, well, damn, if you're doing that, then why are you even having an all-star game if you're so afraid that somebody's going to shoot it up? Like, not that it's impossible that somebody might shoot this thing up, but unless y'all got some tip from the FBI, that was silly. Like, you're a league that is trying to get fan interest. You need to let fans in to see this. Apparently, it was very difficult for people to get in to, like, see the three-point contest because so many of the tickets or the available seats went to corporate folks. Now, on one level, I don't blame the WNBA for that because all these events are corporate. All these tickets at all these things, where it's all-star, Super Bowl, you know, wherever, it's very, very heavy on corporate, right? Like the Super Bowl and the crowds in the Super Bowl tend to be dry because it's all somebody who got the ticket, right? Like you got a handful of people who are fans and figured out how to make it work. But it's so many people who got the ticket because of some level of business interest. That's what got them there. And if you're the WNBA, like you kind of got to do that because you're trying to curry favor with these corporations. You're trying to get money from these corporations. But you got to build fans, right? Like you got to get a base. And you don't want your fans feeling like they can't get to, of all things, the WNBA, right? Like, like that to me is something that you can't feel like. Kind of an example there, the WNBA getting it wrong. But y'all all saw the biggest reason or the biggest way the WNBA got it wrong. Or more accurately, the smallest way that the WNBA got it wrong. And what is that way that the WNBA got it wrong? Bro, did y'all see that all-star trophy? All right, now, if you did not see the uh, All-Star MVP trophy, if you did not see it, I want you to pause right now and go check out that trophy, okay? Go ahead. I'll be here when you get back. Don't you worry. Now, congratulations to you, Kelsey Plum. You were the All-Star Game MVP. Bruh, that trophy was like one of them cup trophies. You know what I'm saying? With the handles on the side. <sighs> that woman was holding that trophy up with both hands. And I guess because it would have made for a more symmetric photograph. Dog, they should have just let her hold that thing in the palm of her hand. That time, that that trophy was so small. That trophy looked like they got it from the trophy shop. Like your all-star trophy shouldn't look like a trophy that you could conceivably hand to every member of the team. It should look too expensive for that. No, no, no. And who knows, man? Maybe that thing was sterling silver. Maybe they got that thing from uh from Tiffany. I ain't got no idea. I just could not believe how small that trophy was. I think they was joking online and they were saying that you could find a better trophy on Amazon. Yes, you could. I've seen it. I've seen it. You can find it. This the same year where they redid the All-Star Game MVP trophy as a tribute to Kobe, Steph looked like he had to bend his knees to raise that thing over his shoulder. It's WNBA trophy. Like, you could put that in a trophy case, but you're really just going to put that thing on a mantle. Like, it don't, it, it don't. Come on, man. Y'all can't do that, right? Even if you wanted to go a little bit too, like, gender specific on it give them a plate like Wimbledon you know what I'm saying give you something that you can hold up over your head I feel like that should be the rule about the size of your trophy no matter the circumstance that thing gotta be big enough that you can hold it up 
over your head. That ain't what they gave them. Now, look, I actually cut more slack to the WNBA about stuff like salaries. And I've said this before, that the argument that Brittany Griner had to go to Russia because of a WNBA salary, I don't buy that. And the reason I don't buy that is, A, it's an issue of what the revenues are in the WNBA. But I forget which coach it was. I think it was Griner's coach of the Mercury who said that if it was LeBron James, she would have been back by now. And I saw somebody on the internet make the comparison that LeBron James makes $40 million and Brittany Griner makes $220,000. And my criticism of that argument is, LeBron James is absolutely underpaid at $40 million, given what he contributes to the bottom line of the NBA. I can't make that same argument nearly as confidently when it comes to Brittany Griner. But let's say they pay Brittany Griner $2 million rather than $200,000, right? Let's just say that. And there's a problem that the WNBA caps those salaries. Like that part is unfair if it's going to be that low. Okay. If Brittany Griner makes $2 million, in the WNBA, and they paying $2 million in Russia, she going to be in that plane going over there to get $2 million in Russia. Like, the only way that you're going to make it to where it's not worth it to Brittany Griner to go get $2 million in Russia is if you're paying like $10 million in the WNBA, and that's never going to be feasible or realistic, or at least no time soon based on what the revenues are. I think the league needs to, like, bump up the pay just because of the signal that it sends. I do agree with that. But they got a labor surplus over there where first round picks get cut like as rookies because there's so few spots. They got more good players than they actually have spots, you know, on the team. And since you don't have those big salaries at the top, what you wind up with is these young players coming in. If they making the same amount of money as the older players, why are you going to take the younger, less experienced person that isn't there? You're not getting any saving from it. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? So. That is a criticism that I don't fully agree with as it comes across from other people. I just don't. Like what you're asking for, and I think in some ways the league should do, is to subsidize these leagues at the expense of profit. I do think they should do that to an extent, but I don't know how far you're supposed to say that they should do that, right? So I'm not one of those people that just hammers the NBA and WNBA on everything as they run this league. However, it's the little things that you can do to help at least make the league look like a big deal. And I think that part of what the argument that people make about salary and everything else is really just about the idea that this league is a big deal and they don't see the signals that imply that it is a big deal. Salaries are a proxy for respect. Anybody that's been in negotiation knows that. Salaries are a proxy for for respect. And so the low salaries look like low respect. I could come in here and try to make some arguments and have some discussions about some of those things to broaden out the conversation, but I cannot ignore or deny why people look at it and feel like those players are being disrespected because salaries are typically a proxy for respect. But again, I think that one's a bit complex. However, stuff like that trophy, you can fix that. That's a, you can pay the money for a better trophy. You can get that out of petty cash or wherever it is. You got to get that money. You can do better on the trophy. No question about that. And if they're going to run this league and they want us to feel like it's a big deal and it's a bigger deal than it's ever been and the players are probably more famous than they've ever been, the league and the quality of play is certainly higher than it has ever been, right? Like I would say right now, I would rather watch the average 
WNBA game over the average men's college basketball game, which is something I never would have said 15 years ago. I definitely would say that now. They're there. But if you can't spend the money to make things look like big deals on high levels, you can do it on lower levels. You can do it on smaller levels. And that all-star game trophy should look befitting of someone who is a big deal. And so as much as it's funny to look at that little trophy, it's also a sign that I feel like the league doesn't understand that even if you are handcuffed in some way by money, you can still do things to make the women who play this feel like they are treated with similar respect to their male counterparts. You can do that. And it is important that you do this. So next year, get them a real trophy, please. Y'all giving out rings for the winner of the Summer League and y'all got that little bitty trophy for the WNBA. Come on, man. That you can do better than. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we are here for our final installment of the Right Time Book Club. Thanks so much to Howard Bryan and to Corey Erdman for joining us on the first two installments. And now we are going to wrap this up. Um, Our next guest is currently the editor-in-chief at The New Yorker. And, of course, he is the author of King of the World, um, our book about Muhammad Ali that we've read. Of course, you still got time to catch up if you didn't. Podcast lasts forever, so go ahead and do that and come back along with us. But David Remnick, how are you, sir? I'm great. It's great to talk with you. No, man, it's it's so good to have you. And I remember I read this book for the first time. It was actually 22 years ago when I was in this, what am I going to do with my life portion of things? And I just started ordering a bunch of books. And this is one of them I read. I used it in the book that I taught and the class I taught at Duke um, a few years ago because I thought it was the best way to look at Ali, where you could go through the whole run, but the biggest reason why we're here with Ali really is what happens between 1964 and 1971. Like, that's that's the, that's the building of the legend, and before we get to adult Ali, and of course the Ali that people my age were more familiar with, the one, honestly, who did not talk. But for you, I'm wondering, when you first got into this and decided you were going to do this, for me, I am scared to death of the prospect of writing a book. I can't imagine deciding I'm going to write a book about Muhammad Ali. So like, how intimidating was it to do? Well, you know, I, it was coming out of a period of, of my life, Bomani, where I, I had lived in Russia for four years and my head was in, an, in another place. A revolution was going on. Um, hard to imagine now with Russia rampaging, the Russian army rampaging through Ukraine. It was a highly optimistic period. 
And I was trying to get my arms around that for a long time, you know, like, um, you know, John Reed and, and, and 10 Days That Shook the World. And I wanted to write a book that was more <laughs> uh, American um, and under control that would have just a few characters, like, like a novel almost. And I wanted to try to write about race, which is a very, very complicated thing to do for about a thousand different reasons. Right. And, and Ali just, and I grew up with Ali, right? So I was a little kid when he's emerging. So he was everything to me in, in the way that certain people in music were, he introduced me to the world. You don't, you know, when you're seven years old um, and you're a white kid in some suburb, you're, you're, you're not thinking foremost about racial politics. You're thinking about right. first grade or something like that. So when I would listen to Ali in, in his endless interviews with Howard Cosell or, or all the rest, and he was talking about things that weren't about boxing. They were about the nation of Islam. They were about race. They were about Vietnam. That was a, that was a, a rude introduction to the broader life of America through, through this athlete. Right. And I think we talked about this just a little bit before we got started. Well, one thing I want to get to before that is a point that Howard made that I didn't realize in kind of the historical continuum of biography writing, that a significant thing about this that made it important was rather than trying to take on the full Ali in the whole period, which Thomas Hauser, of course, and others had done, you locked in on a particular right. time period, right? Now, was that your original plan or was that something that, you know, you get to, to the book proposal phase and they're like, hey, well, what if you just make this a little shorter and go deeper? No, from the get from the get go, it was the idea. I've always I've always taken note as a writer and as a reader, particularly in biographies, that the most interesting part is how someone becomes himself or herself. How does Walt Whitman become Walt Whitman? Um, how how does um, Lyndon Johnson from from Nowheresville, Texas, become this this large character? And and Ali of course, didn't start out as Ali. He started out as Cassius Clay in, in, in Kentucky and in, in Jim Crow, Kentucky. All this, this interesting material. At a certain point, and I, I don't mean to be unfair to anybody's life or career, after a while, it's just this fight, this fight, this fight, and this fight. It becomes, it's not as interesting to me. What was interesting to me is he comes up, he creates himself out of a, all kinds of American uh, influences, whether it's Gorgeous George, the professional wrestler, or Malcolm X, or a, a lot of other different things. He he creates this thing, this character. And at the same time, he is Sugar Ray Robinson, who happens to weigh 200 pounds. In other words, he he brings a new thing to heavyweight fighting, which is incredible velocity. He's a He's a lightweight or a middleweight fighting at heavyweight and nobody had ever seen that before. So that was one thing. And I was also interested in how the heavyweight championship of the world, which doesn't mean all that much anymore. In fact, if I, I think if you and I went out on the street and asked somebody who the heavyweight champion is, nobody would know. Right. It used to be a high office and it had meaning, right? Jack Johnson meant a certain thing. Rocky Marciano meant a certain thing. Joe Lewis fighting Max Schmeling meant a certain thing that was more than just one guy beating somebody else's brains. It had political, global meaning. And so when Ali starts, 
champion is is Sonny List is is Floyd Patterson, who was uh, adored by how would I put it white liberals. Um, Jack Kennedy wanted to invite him to the White House. He was very polite. I, I don't I don't want to make anybody a caricature, but there was a certain kind of and and these are loaded phrases that I'm highly aware of it. NAACP approved, Democratic Party approved Floyd Patterson. And then along comes the opposite, the nightmare. Uh, and he's tough and he doesn't say much. And that's Sonny Liston. And then this entirely new thing happens. This 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 kid <laughs> comes along. He's not only unique as a boxer, he's unique as a personality, uh, as somebody with real politics who will not be quiet, who will not behave, capital B, uh, and, and changes his name. And this all comes in the tumult of the, of the, of the encroaching 60s. So that was exciting to me. Yeah, and I think you talk about wanting to get into something about race. I think it could be very easy, and I imagine that you tell me if I'm wrong here, what race meant as it related to Ali is so multifaceted because there is the interracial elements, but there are also the intra-racial elements, right? And so this place of Ali as this handsome, lighter-skinned man and the role that that allowed him to play, where in a lot of ways in these fights, like especially when you talk about the Frazier stuff, he's the white man in those fights in the way that he presents himself, right? Like he's calling this guy a gorilla, he's saying he looks like a monkey, and everything else while he's doing this yeah. and getting and getting the affection of white people like i don't think he quite realized that they're like no you're telling n-word jokes right now and we love them but That's before right. we get to that part he is the most terrifying man to so many people in america which as you said after sunny Liston, who they thought was the most terrifying man and you get to this place where you mentioned the naacp approved part loaded though that phrase is it is 100 accurate and then Ali comes and NAACP is like, hey, so which uh, one of these are we supposed to get behind here? <laughs> exactly right. Bumani. I, I, exactly right. And yet it's important to say we shouldn't make a plaster saint of Muhammad Ali. He, there were things that he did wrong. And I remember very vividly going up to see him in um, he lived in near, near Notre Dame, but across the state line in, in Michigan on a farm. And by then he was quite sick and he couldn't speak that well, and we go up to his little office that he had and he took out his uh, briefcase and he knew what I was writing about. And he, he was very, very self-aware human being. And he took out an eight and a half by 11 photograph of him and Malcolm X. And in a very halting way said that he was, how sorry he was for pushing Malcolm X aside. You know, there came a point where, and he, remember how young he was. Right. He was incredibly young. And he was forced to choose between Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the, the Nation of Islam, and, and Malcolm X, um, because Malcolm X came to be seen as an apostate in the nation. And he went with Elijah Muhammad, and of course, Malcolm X was um, murdered in 1965. I think I'm getting that right. Yes, five. And he felt real remorse for having rejected this guy who had been at his side in Miami when he beat Sonny Liston and thereafter. Um, it was very moving. And he knew he had made mistakes. He knew that his behavior with women was not exemplary. Um, he, had a, he had a real sweet tooth where that was concerned and broke a lot of 
marriages and hearts too. And he felt bad about that. Luckily in his life, he ended up with a, an extraordinary woman. Yeah. So like, he's not. I, wanna, no, I was going to say, I want to put a pin in the part about women because that's something I definitely wanted to get to while I was with you. But I wanted to talk about you approaching writing about the nation of Islam because there's a lot going on there. Like I say this jokingly, but this is also fairly accurate, right? Like it's black militant Scientology in a lot of ways. And I think one of the more interesting passages in the book is when he and Angelo Dundee are talking about, it and he's talking about the people coming from space and everything like that. And it helped spell out one, which seemed like such a contradictory contradiction with Ali which was the dogma of the nation of Islam versus like the fact that he had this relationship with Angelo Dundee, for example, right? Like that didn't seem to make sense, but I think it spelled out another part about Ali that I always found interesting, which is rather than being a leader, he was the most courageous soldier because soldier was the only, that's the only position that was open in the nation, right? Mm -hmm. Like Malcolm X was also a soldier. Every word you said was the honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches us that dot, dot, dot. So for you, as you start getting in and doing the research, was there a difficulty that came from getting that part of the story just because of who knows what people want to say or your name is David Remnick and you're coming to talk to the guys in the Nation of Islam? Well, that's a great question. I think, look, the only way to do these things is to do it straight and honestly and, and to know who you are. And I think what you're hinting at is, as, as you know, as a as a white Jewish kid from from a certain area, as opposed to somebody who had grown up inside of this environment. But I, I did my work and the chips fall where they may. I tried to be as fair as possible, to talk to as many people as possible with open ears, to not treat it like exoticism, um, to, to deal with it the way you would uh, deal with it, whether it was the, it's the French Revolution or the story of Muhammad Ali or the Civil War, to deal with it honest and to know that your own work will be outstripped in, in time. That's the whole nature of uh, journalism and certainly of scholarship too. I What excited me was that there was a kind of, there were certain symmetries, you know, of those three heavyweight champions, but then there's a lot of confusion that you, you point out. Um, that on the one hand, Ali is aligning himself with a faith that was huh, supernatural, and unfortunately, in some areas, criminal and screwed up in, in many ways, and yet was a source of pride and identity and meaning and discipline to a lot of young men and women and families at a certain time. It's complex. And where we go wrong then and where we go wrong now is when we deny complexity. And we insist from our various corners that things are simple. They're, they're never simple. Because so when I say something is supernatural, we could turn to any religion and there's a certain amount of, you know, there's burning bushes and all kinds of uh, aspects of it that we could criticize or doubt or be skeptical of. But I just wanted to tell the story straight and without him being a plaster saint. Right. And I think the at that point, we were moving toward plaster sainthood of Ali, right? Like this is after the 96 Olympics, which was kind of the reconciliation moment, which is something that I didn't grasp right. as a 15 year old watching it at the time. Is that like what that meant to older people and a whole lot of people shrugging it off? Because to me, you know, and especially in my house, we all love Muhammad Ali, right? Yeah. 
one thing that was easy to ignore, like for black people, that black Christians in particular were looking at him like, hey, I don't know about this guy. Again, right. we have a lot of people that wound up riding with Sonny Liston that you never would have expected at that time. For a lot of white people, he was the guy that was opposed to the Vietnam War, though popular opinion eventually caught up to where he was on that matter. But when you talk about the plaster sainthood, the thing that jumps out we just talked about was his treatment of women and the views of women that he had that were contributed to by the sect that he had joined all comes together. And I wonder in terms of the reception from a lot of people who were acolytes of Ali, how they felt in many cases in reading this and realizing like, hey, we're he did not come off as a bad man to me in the book, but he did come off yeah. as a man, you know? Yeah, and a man of his time. And by the way, just when we're talking about women, just so to stipulate, this is it's not like he was some sort of hidden Harvey Weinstein. Right. He was a great athlete who, let's just say, took advantage of the perquisites of being a great and beautiful <laughs> world famous athlete with gusto. And uh and you know, so he's not the only person in, in world history who's ever done that. He was, I don't know that there were ever any charges of anything approaching um anything illegal or even close to it I, right. all i mean to say is that um uh for a guy who espoused a certain religious discipline um that discipline didn't extend to every part of his life and, and I, so i'd say that and no more right. you know um it's important to be clear about it um i you know and also we should be clear that he left the nation of islam that at a certain point he transferred from um, the nation of Islam to mainstream Islam, and um, but he he was a and he was a source of funds for the nation too. At a certain point, uh, there was right. a, a you know a, a two way street going on. The nation lost a lot when they lost him. Yeah, and that's you know they you know like when you think about it, top ranked boxing would still exist. That's Herbert <laughs> Muhammad coming up with this and working with Bob Arum. Again, some of the contradictions of the idea of the nation that, hey, Bob Arum, hey, man, we got to sell these fights. Come on down, you know, and we'll come on and you wind up seeing him there. And so to me, Ali, as this broader figure, especially as you get to the 1970s, when you start talking about him, it seems like such a far cry from the 1960s in the ways we viewed him. And you mentioned Floyd That's Patterson, who I think is almost as interesting in this book as Ali because he's the most vulnerable character that we could think of and so honest about what it was, you know, to be defeated in these ways. And I found myself feeling bad for him in the sense that he took on the, okay, I'm going to be the enemy of Ali and I'm going to curry white favor in the course of this for a nation that rooted against him when he fought Ingemar Johansson, who ain't even from here. Right, from Sweden. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, one of the themes in the book, Bamani, as I look back on it, is the, the world of boxing was criminal. It was criminal. Nearly every fighter that you can think of up to a certain point was controlled by one mob syndicate or another, whether it was Bernie Carbo or, you know. And Ali starts, and he wants to get free of this. On the other hand, ironically, his his first forgive me, but his first you know business syndicate or or masters as he came to see it was a group of white businessmen in Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, you see photographs of them in Old Sports Illustrated. It looks like here, you know, ten white guys sitting in a boardroom with with their twenty two year old black boxer from in 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 a still. Uh, uh, Jim Crow city. The, the, not only the optics bad, the reality was horrendous. 
And he he recognized this and wanted to be free with this. He didn't want to be owned like a thoroughbred racehorse. And what happened was, is that the Nation of Islam became his 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 syndicate. This was his version of a new world of, uh, but and he wasn't free of it. Um, Sonny Liston was a com completely operated by mobsters until the day he died, even long after he left boxing. Um, Rocky Marciano. Well, it's just it, it, this is a big theme. It's a it's it's that sport has never entirely freed itself of it's a it's a skeezy it's a skeezy um, world boxing yeah. and Ali was never quite able to conquer that entirely, but he tried to break free of it. And I think historically, like when I did that class at Duke, the way I did it was I took six biographies of six fairly significant figures through the course of time. Jack Johnson was the first. Allen Iverson was the second and filled it in with Jackie Robinson, Jim Brown, um, Ali and Joe Lewis. Right. Like these are the guys that come in between. And Lewis, as he compares to Ali, is so interesting. Like one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is. Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson were stationed at the same fort in the army together. And there's a great story in a book called um, Hard Times Man by Randy Roberts, a really good bio right. of Joe Lewis, where he talks about somebody giving Joe Lewis some hell on the bus. And Jackie Robinson put a pistol in his mouth and the way he described it was and knocked, loosened all his teeth <laughs> at the time. You know, like this is this is Joe Lewis was the biggest, baddest man in the world, but his personality was a big different. And the comparison for a lot of boxing writers from Joe Lewis, who became their hero because of the Max Schmeling victory, although a lot of them rooted against him before, you know, Schmeling and, and before Germany, not Schmeling, had gone full Nazi. But when you think about Joe Lewis being in the ring in 1964 in Miami, when he wins that fight, and Ali is now the transition there, what I found interesting in the book was when you talk about guys like Jimmy Cannon and the comparison between the ways they talked about Joe Lewis and the way they revered him largely because he was so quiet and then Ali comes and they realize, oh, wait a minute, I might not be as well, liberal you, as you, I thought. You, you know better than I do. The key phrase here that people like Jimmy Cannon would use is a credit to his race. Right. Credit to his race. He's one of the good ones. Right. He's one of the good ones. Look, I, I think these books are all the ones that you mentioned. Some of them are about, in large measure, they're about the way one person can change his or her times, and but vice versa. In other words, they are they they find themselves like we all do, landed in a certain time. Ali, to his immense credit, had the wit, the mother wit, and the intelligence to see that the world was changing enough so that he could help change it. Right. If, if, if you know what I mean. I think if he had been born in 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 Joe Lewis's time, he would not have had that room. He would not have had that room. I mean, he was surrounded by, he had problems with the civil rights movement, the mainstream civil rights movement, but things were changing. Things were in the air. Um, Malcolm X's speeches were in the air. And I think sometimes what overly romantic writers can do with somebody like Muhammad Ali is ascribe to him, not only was the great, greatest boxer who ever lived, not only was he extremely brave, in terms of uh, putting his career on the line and much else, um, but that he was some sort of amazing political theorist uh, at the same time. We shouldn't do that. That's that's in, in a way condescending almost to him it, or, or, or crazily romanticizing, if that's the other thing. He was somebody who seized what was in the air and gave voice to it to people who might not otherwise have been listening. And um, because he used his high office of heavyweight champion 
um, in a, in a positive way. And so, you know, you know, we have this discussion all the time, you know, and maybe it's unfair. I don't know, but Michael Jordan, in many ways, was the in, in athletic terms, Muhammad Ali's equal. But he didn't want to use that office in the same way. Um, in fact, most athletes don't want to do that because they don't necessarily have the wherewithal, the inclination, or they're fearful of um, of, of doing that. It takes an extraordinary person, and Ali was uh, was one. And I think Jordan also becomes a reflection of the times. And you can use some of the things that Ali discussed in the 80s to kind of make that point. Where in the 80s is where he tells us that his favorite politician is Orrin Hatch because Orrin Hatch wants to keep God in school. And you're like, yeah, that's the same dude. The same dude is like, yeah, Orrin Hatch, yeah, that's my guy. You know, like things, yeah. the 80s came and it just seemed like a lot of the world was exhausted and everybody was like, oh, I guess it's time to get this money. No, and Orrin Hatch, uh, yeah, it, 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 and, and Jesse Helms and all that. It just, it's, it's disappointing. It doesn't make you appreciate Michael Jordan's artistry any, any less, but he just didn't have that other dimension as a, as, as a human being. To ask that of many people is to ask too much. Yeah. Now, one thing you mentioned is how much money Ali made for the Nation of Islam. But let's be honest, no one has made more money for us in our industry than Muhammad <laughs> Ali, right? Like you think about the number of Sports Illustrated covers, the number yeah. of thorough biographies, the documentaries. Yeah. I mean, Ken Burns just rolled out a great documentary on Muhammad Ali not too long ago. Like, will there ever be anybody as fascinating as him or is it? Now that we're out of a monoculture world, is it even possible for somebody to be what I leave? I, I, to say no equivocally would, would be to be an old man, right? Like no <laughs> one has ever done it. But it's hard to imagine. I mean, if you combine the fact that he was, and part of it is that he's in a solo sport, right? He's not playing right guard for the Green Bay Packers or even quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. He's all alone in a ring in this gladiatorial sport which you don't need metaphor. <laughs> it's all there. And he was beautiful. Uh, there's no denying that. And he was hilarious. He wasn't solemn. He was hilarious and um, got under enough people's skin. So he was controversial. Um, it's very hard to see that matched in any way in any way um right. he, he was unique yeah now this i can't i feel comfortable saying because i agree with you we don't ever want to seem like the old man in those things but it is almost impossible for me to imagine and this is as someone who hadn't been who wasn't born till nine years later anything bigger than the 1971 fight with joe frazier where in order to get in frank sinatra had to take pictures yeah, Frank Sinatra was at ringside for the, the first fight in Madison Square Garden, and his, he, he was shooting for Life magazine so he could get a good seat. And the and the humble correspondent for Life magazine was was one Norman Mailer. <laughs> I, you know, a lot, and, and this was also does not exist now the way it existed in the sixties and seventies. Writers who actually mattered at that time um, were attracted to not only boxing but to Ali like catnip. I mean, it, it was just, there was a, there was a kind of give and take between them and Ali knew it and he fed it and he knew how to, he knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. 
And so, you know, one of Mailer's best books, to my mind, is his book about the fight in Zaire uh, against George Foreman. But here again is a complexity with Ali about Zaire. I mean, they didn't have to have that fight to heighten the world image of Mobutu. Right. Horrible, horrible dictator. Ali just saw it in his mind, I'm going to go to Africa. And he was not, I don't know if he wasn't in control enough about the wherewithal or something like that, but there, <laughs> Africa is not one country. Right. And it could have been somewhere else uh, less, uh, you know, he, uh, Mobutu was a, a, a kleptocrat of the highest order. That didn't seem to bother anybody, even Norman Mailer. Yeah. Well, it's interesting there. And I say this as someone whose oldest brother is named Patrice Lumumba Jones. Right. And I don't think anybody in our house really tripped about it at the time right. that the fight was happening. Was like, I'd Af have to go back and Africa. ask. Right. It wasn't yeah. in Vegas. It wasn't in Atlantic City. It was it was that was a thing that was an important thing. But um, the complexities of it weren't teased out at the moment. Hmm. In the in oh. the movie is in, in we it, it is in the movie a little bit you kind of see a bit of that an an awareness of this uh, uh, nutty dictator um, but at the time it really wasn't it really wasn't now as we wrap this up I'm curious about this for you like did you realize when you sent that book in and it went out that like you had written a definitive text. First of all, you're nice to say that, but no, no, no. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you have this experience with anything in your life, but when I look at it now, insofar as I do, it's like written by another person. I, I it, It's very strange. I'll write something and when enough time passes, while I'm writing it and I'm rereading drafts and all that, I hate it. I think it's just terrible. And finally, the process of finishing is to give up. I just wrote about Mavis Staples for The New Yorker. I swear to God, in two weeks from now, it will have been out a month and it'll be like reading somebody else. It's a weird phenomenon. So I, I don't, uh, I, I'm sure someone will come along and write something better and different. That's, that's just the nature of things. Well, last thing on that. Was there anything that you recall that you wanted to get in and just could not get into the book because it just didn't work? Like the analogy I always use is Fleetwood Mac's Rumors. Silver Spring is the best song on Rumors, but it didn't fit, so it's not on there. But it's better than anything just because it didn't fit. I, it wasn't a matter of didn't fit, but I don't think I solved the mystery of the second Liston fight to my satisfaction. In other words, it's you remember this, the anchor punch. Right. And, Liston goes down to stay in the first round and everybody thought it was a hoax or a fix. And because Liston was, you know, tied in with the mob, was he paid off? I had, remember everybody was dead for them, dead or on their way out. Boyd Patterson, by the time I was interviewing him, had real dementia problems. Liston was dead. And the people around Liston that were still alive, Let's just say they're dubious at best. So <laughs> the level of information, uh, I didn't do my Bob Woodward <laughs> and solve the riddle of Watergate on that. But I, I, it's 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 hard to know. Well, look, it, that it, is, oh, go ahead. No, the, but the whole point of the whole book for me as a literary enterprise was to leave a lot out, was to have it very, just his growing up, his becoming himself, whether like Annie Oakley or Walt Whitman or Malcolm X, for that matter, um, and then have him reach the the heights, and then end of story. 
that's that's what I wanted to, to get at. Look, that is David Remnick again, King of the World, one of my favorite books. I'm so glad we got to do this for the book club, and I'm so glad that you were able to join us as we go through this, man. Thank you so much with this. I am so honored to be with you. You you, you do great work, and to know that you like that book is makes well my heart lifts up. Thank you. Oh, man, no problem, man. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Taylor Schwenk handled everything behind the scenes today. Thank you, sir. Remember, follow The Right Time. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. And we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy. Thanks for checking out The Right Time with Bomani Jones Podcast. You can listen or follow on the ESPN app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Right Time with Bomani Jones.